story of Jacob and uh, his wrestling with God throughout uh, the night. And uh, I said uh, four main points I wanted to convey. We were created to be in a dance with God. We were created to be a, a dance partner with God, with God as our leader. So we're submitting, we're following, we're synchronizing our movements with him. Uh, to find beauty and to find peace and to find rest. But um, we are actually, because of our sins, separated from God. We, uh, in fact, wrestle against God. Um, and so we tend, uh, for most of our life, to wrestle for independence from God. And we saw about halfway through the, the wrestling match, um, Jacob realizes who's he, who he's fighting with, and he realizes the power of God and the holiness of God. And he's, at that point, he, he holds on to God, and he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And so he went from fighting for independence to wrestling for dependence, to, to uh, uh, go to God with a need for God, with a need to be dependent upon God, and, and uh, to allow God to contradict and to shape and to mold him into a, uh, a better vessel of God's glory and to find his joy and his, his meaning in life uh, through God. And we saw through the story of uh, Abraham's ancestors from, or I mean, uh, Jacob's ancestors from Abraham and Sarah to his father Esau and with him and his relationship with his father and his relationship with his brother and then him uh, his relationship with his uncle and his relationship with his wives Rachel and Leah um, leading up to this story this constant failure of all of them to trust God for their meaning their purpose their status in life and they're constantly fighting against God going against what God told them to do um, and uh, they're in search of something something to to lead them into a place of of rest, a place of peace, a place of uh, uh, where they're not longing for more and needing for more. And so uh, what God wants for us is to be back in that dance, but he needs to contradict, he needs to, uh, to change us, he needs to lead us to repentance. And so he, re- he comes and he allows us to wrestle with him uh, and uh, allows us to, to wrestle with him for that. Um, and so we talked last week about some of the things that your life would look like if you are wrestling for dependence in God. And this week, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the opposite of that. What would your life look like if you are wrestling for independence, if you're fighting against God? So we saw examples of it, but I want to talk more intellectually about what it looks like from an uh, intellectual, philosophical understanding. So we're going to go to one of our, our li- uh, wisdom literature from the Old Testament. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you can make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you open to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find yourself somewhere near Psalms or Proverbs. And if you're in Psalms or Proverbs, you just want to keep going to your right. This is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So if you are... uh, uh, somehow landed in maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah, which might be also, you want to go to your left, a couple of books. There's Song of Songs in there in between Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So we're going to do most of our readings and we're going to start in verse 12. Um, before we read, though, I just want a couple of things you need to understand uh, before uh, to understand this fully. Um, you're going to see the word vanity in there a few times. Um, this is not a vanity like you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you, vanity. Um, this, uh, so if you were to go to the dictionary, you'd see two or three that have to do with that type of vanity, and you get to a vanity that talks about a lack of real value, a, hollow, a hollowness, a, ho- a worthlessness, um, or something worthless, trivial, or pointless. 
that's the vanity to which um, this word is being used uh, in this scripture. In fact, uh, he, the, uh, we don't know who wrote um, Ecclesiastes. There's some guesses that Solomon might be, uh, and there's some who say it's probably not Solomon. I tend to think it's not, but Solomon might be the best guess. Um, but um, anyways, he kind of opens his whole book with this statement in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, the preacher being the writer. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He says, vanity of vanities twice, and then he says, all is vanity. And again, the vanity here is basically worthlessness, emptiness. And this is how he chooses to start his book. Um, and if you were to use, uh, if you were to use, let's say, today's language, um, it would probably read something like, utterly fruitless, utterly fu- fruitless, the whole thing is futile. Um, and he's talking about life. So, this is a very uplifting uh, book of the Bible. Um, now, we're going to read this, and uh, it is from an intellectual um, idea, delusion. It can cause delusion. It can cause um, despair. Uh, but I think as we read this, we're going to see that there is beauty in this despair. Um, so if you read this with me, and you're going to be like, this is crazy, there's no beauty in here. But bear with me, I think we'll get there. But let's read together. Starting in... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. There's one other thing I meant to mention. Uh, the term under the sun is also going to be in here a couple of times. You'll see it a few times, actually. And it's used 30 times in the book and no other place in the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, like, everything here, everything that we see under the sun is what exists. Now, he's not making the argument, as we're going to see, that that's all that exists. But he's saying... Let's wrestle with this idea that nothing exists except for what is under the sun. And so, I don't know, uh, any, any of you are Neil deGrasse Tyson fans in here, um, or maybe you're old school and really big fans of Carl Sagan, but Carl Sagan started, uh, or had a PBS documentary way back about space called The Cosmos, and he always started every episode by saying something along the lines of, the cosmos is all there is and all there ever will be, and there's nothing but the cosmos, and that was a part of uh, DeGrasse Tyson's, I think, preview of the uh, his updated version of it, which came out two years ago, three years ago, something like that. Um, but basically he's saying, let's wrestle with what the world would look like if nothing existed except for what we can see under the sun. So let's read okay. uh, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is no gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in its head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also in vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise die just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master of all which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is man. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the man. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, come here each Sunday celebrating you and your goodness. But a part of uh, celebrating you is to know you know, the emptiness apart from you. The disillusionment, the despair apart from you. It's to also know that as a gift. Know uh, what you want for us is more than that, and the great length to which you went for that. So today, we pray, Father, that you will help us to know how uh, we are nothing and we have nothing away from you. How much we need to help us to examine our hearts carefully today and find the areas in which um, we are empty because we can't trust you and haven't trusted you and haven't committed to you. Help us to grow in our trust and our faith in you today. Is anyone here today who uh, doesn't know that? Help them to see that in truth and in reality in a way that we can see. Amen. So I think it's uh, kind of easy to read this and uh, say, you know, read things like in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Uh, what has a man, in verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And go, okay, look, I know, Brian, you're into all that philosophy stuff. I know you're into all that thinking and questioning nonsense. And But my life is good. My life is meaningful. I have purpose. I find joy at times. And uh, uh, I want to challenge you today to realize that you don't. And I think the uh, author of the, the book is doing the same thing. Um, a uh, commentary by a guy named G.S. Hedry uh, says this. Uh, the teacher writes uh, from concealed premises, and this book is in reality a major work of apologetic. Its apparent worldliness is dictated by its aim. The teacher is addressing the general public whose view is bounded by the horizons of this world. He meets them on their own ground and proceeds to convict them of its inherent vanity. This is further borne out of his characteristic expression under the sun, by which he describes what the New, what the New Testament calls the world. His book is, in fact, a critique of secularism and a 
and of secularized religion. He's arguing that if you, if you are finding meaning in this world, in a secular worldview of any sort, which is to say there's nothing bigger than the, the things of this world. Everything is found in this world. Every meaning, every joy, every piece, every piece of rest is found in this world. You are going to lay left with vanity, with nothing. Um, he makes it pretty clear that this is what his argument is in the beginning. As he said, uh, as I said, he opens with um, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. This is what he's trying to convince us of. There's a, a long poem in the beginning of chapter two. Well, not terribly long, or beginning of uh, sorry, in chapter one. And we're not going to go over it, but the whole thing is basically about emptiness and despair that this world is left apart from God. I think uh, where we would differ from this uh, uh, professor, this teacher, is uh, we're really good at compartmentalizing our lives. We all do this. We give meaning to certain parts of our lives because we attach them to a greater meaning. So um, it, we attach meaning to things that don't have any meaning because we are hoping for meaning in some other part of our lives. And I know that might sound bleak, because what I'm saying to you is, before we, we get into the depth of what that means, what I'm saying to you is, where you attach meaning in parts of your life is false. And the end goal where you're pursuing to get meaning in is a lie. Again, you might be saying, okay, this sounds like some of those art housey independent films that might be shown over at Cinematech at the... Uh, Cleveland Institute of Art, or maybe sometimes at Cedar Lee, or at Capitol Theater, or it sounds like that drunk philosopher that sits on the bar all night um, and talks about the despair of the world, or maybe uh, some of those uh, dark songs that play on the radio sometimes, or uh, some of the strange art galleries around town, the smaller independent galleries that have real dark um, uh, philosophies, or real dark pictures of humanity. But this is what the Bible says is our existence. The question is, do you believe it? And so we attach meaning, and we do so in a circular form at times, in a logical, circular way. There is a, an old cartoon, a newspaper cartoon, um, called Mutton Jeff. Probably many of you have never heard of it. I think it ended sometime in like the 80s. Um, but it ran for seven decades. It was really long, six or seven decades. It ran for a long time. It's about two guys, um, Mutt and Jeff. Uh, Jeff was kind of, a right, kind of a regular guy, and Mutt was a little, uh, let's say, unintelligent. Um, and so in one of them, Jeff comes along, uh, Mutt, and Mutt is right in the middle of a road, and he's built a very, very tall pile of stones. And on the top pile of the stones, there was a lantern. And Jeff says to Mutt, oh, Mutt, why did you build this pile of stones? And Mutt replies, oh, that's easy. So I could put a lantern up there so it's up high, so it gives a lot of light. And Jeff replies, oh, okay, why'd you put a lantern up there? Mutt says, well, I want the lantern up there so the car will see the pile of stones and they won't crash into it. Jeff replies, well, though, or why, though, did you put the pile of stones there for the car to crash into? He says, well, so I could put the lantern up there. Right? He gave meaning to all these different parts of what he was doing, but there was no part of him that was going, okay, 
in what overall sense does this not make sense? In the whole picture, is this stupid? So again, when you go back and you look at what the teacher wrote in 18, he wrote, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. And in verse 22, he wrote, What has a man from all the toil, all the toil and striving of his heart, which he toils beneath the sun? And of course, Jesus said, What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? This is not a foreign question for us in our, in our Bible. But the, the picture is all. The picture is the whole of life, not just in parts of your life. And so, so, you know, we work. Some of us love to go to work. Some of us despise going to work. Those of us who love to go to work, we typically love to go to work because we think we're going to get out of it something else, whether it be fame or status or um, success or wealth that allows me to do the hobbies that I want to do. And then, those of us that hate going to work, it's because we would rather be doing the hobbies or the pursuing our uh, pleasures in different things. And so, well, why do you love to do those pleasurable things? Well, because they give me joy. Well, why do you go to work? Well, because they ena work enables me to pursue those pleasures. If you love going to work, why do you love to go to work? Well, because it allows me to do the pleasures that I'd like to do outside of group, or it's going to get me to a place where I can enjoy the things that are pleasurable. Well, why do you like those things? Because they, they allow me to, uh, when I go to work, to be recharged. These things outside of work recharge me and allow me to get back to work and to do work well. And we're, we're going back and forth constantly with this desire of, okay, do I, why do I work? Why do I do any of these things? And we give meaning to them in their compartmentalized ways. And we have an ultimate goal to which we kind of give them pleasure and, or give them uh, meaning and give them value. The, our teacher here is telling us when we do that, when we compartmentalize, we're lying. And when we're, we have that greater uh, meaning and it's something other than God, it's something in this world, it's going to fail us, it's going to let us down. You know, so we see with uh, Jacob, when Jacob had, or had had to run away from home, and uh, he ended up at his uncle's farm. In that story, we're told that uh, he ended up having to work 14 years for of labor for to get his beautiful wife Leah, and we're told that it seemed like no time after those 14 years because of how much he desired Leah. Leah was his end goal. He compartmentalized the work. And it seemed like nothing to him because of how beautiful he thought his end goal would be, how meaningful he would find his life and the uh, relationship he would have with Leah. Um, a philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, wrote a pretty famous, well-known um, essay called Existentialism and Humanism. He's arguing for a secular view of life, something apart from God, uh, that will lead us to meaning. And uh, in his last, uh, the, the end of his second to last paragraph, he, he writes this. This is kind of the, the whole argument of his paper, and he writes this. This is humanism, because we remind man that there is no legislator but himself, that he himself, thus abandoned, must decide for himself. 
also because we show that it is not by turning back upon himself, but always by seeking beyond himself an aim which is one of liberation or of one of some particular realization that man can realize himself as truly human. So he says, there's nothing bigger than man, there's no legislator, there's nothing um, to which can dictate to man where meaning is found. But for man to become really human, he must go outside of himself in pursuit of something else. Well, if there's nothing bigger than you, why are you pursuing something other than yourself? What is that? I mean, if you're really all that there is, what is there to pursue? What is there to look forward to? And he's doing it. He's compartmentalizing. He's trying to convince himself that there's nothing bigger than me, but there is something bigger than me to which I need to go outside of myself to find. I need to get outside of myself. Why would someone who is existent solely themselves need to get outside of themselves? Sort of this optimistic agnosticism or this optimistic secularism, which is to say, I was born insignificant, there was no meaning, there was no purpose to which I was born into. I'm heading to nowhere of significance with no purpose, but I will find purpose in between my birth and my death. I will find meaning in between them. <clears throat> if we want to live our lives with the freedom to which uh, says we should, we got to be honest with ourselves. If we're going to be honest and we're going to say, my origin is insignificant, I've come from nothing, and my destiny is insignificant, I'm going to nothing, Let's admit that in between, the life is insignificant. Let's be real about what it is. But also, listen, Christian friends, if you're going to say, I was born into a purpose, I was born into a significant reality, and I'm headed towards a destiny that is supposed to be significant and purposeful, don't live in between as if it's not. There should be great significance to everything you do. But why don't we? If we don't trust God, just as uh, we saw in uh, the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Esau and, uh, uh, and Rachel and Leah and so on and so forth. We also have to be confronted with that reality that there is something that comes next in our life. Uh, he talks about in here how wisdom doesn't lead us when life is only what is under the sun. Wisdom doesn't lead us out of despair. In fact, leads us into greater despair. Wisdom is realizing truth through experience and learning. And when you examine this world, when you grow in the wisdom and the understanding of this world as there is nothing beyond it, you realize its futileness, its vanity, and it leads you to greater despair. But also realizes you also realize its finiteness, and this is what it says in verse thirteen. Then I said, "With my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. 
Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing in that the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And Keller says, uh, Tim Keller says, the, the fact that death brings the search, the fact of death brings the search to a sudden stop. If one fate comes to all, and that fate is ex- extinction, it robs every man of his dignity and every project of its point. Every wise person, every fool, has the exact same endpoint, extinction. Every good thing you did, every good thing you taught, you think you taught someone, every good thing you think you accomplished, every good thing that you built will be passed to somebody else who could be a fool. They could destroy it in a matter of days, months, maybe years. It might go for another generation, but that next person who takes over might destroy it. They might be the fool. But either way, there is extinction at the end. Verse 18, it says, uh, Seeing that I I have must leave, in the end of 18, it says, Seeing that I have must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wiser or fool. Yet I will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The fool and the wise man will be remembered as much in the same way. Um, I talked briefly about how pleasure plays a a role in in, uh, um, our pursuit of meaning, our pursuit of of dealing with the delusionalment of uh, how do we find joy or peace in this world, meaning in this world, our place in this world, as uh, Jacob so struggled with. And in the beginning of chapter 2, if you uh, can turn there, now we're going to read again from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He talks about the vanity of self-indulgence or the pursuit of pleasure. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with, mo- with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers of both, uh, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from my own, from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So a lot of us, pleasure is important to us. But we also have boundaries to which we're saying, I'm not going to go past this line in pursuit of pleasure. I'm not going to go past this line in pursuit of finding something uh, that brings me the pleasure that will help me deal with this lack of, or this emptiness in my life. And this guy says that no boundaries. If I saw it and it looked pleasurable, I enjoyed it. I partook in it. I experienced it. And so he did a lot of things, but he says in verse uh, in verse uh, two, he said, "Of laughter it is mad, and of pleasure what you do." I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. And he says again in uh, in verse uh, um, nine, "So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem." Also, my wisdom remained with me. That wisdom is what he says in the end of it. I pursued all these things with all these things of pleasure. Everything that I could visualize as being pleasurable, I pursued it, I experienced it, and I knew the whole time it wasn't working. My wisdom remained with me. I knew it was vanity. Some things that uh, the pursuit of uh, self-indulgence or pleasure uh, are evident uh, when we do so. It's impulsive, it's impractical. Um, Jacob wanted desperately to have the birthright that was supposed to be his. He wanted desperately for his father to acknowledge his value. And so he pretended to be his brother, dressed up like his brother, tried to smell like his brother, go before his blind father and get that birthright and get that uh, word from his father that he is valued, that he is of uh, uh, good in some sort. Of course, he wasn't going to be able to do that for the rest of his life. It was impulsive. It was impractical. There, there was no way this was going to be successful. It was going to be found out really quickly because his brother was supposed to be there shortly after Jacob left. And of course, it would be evident at this point. Um, it's reductionist. It robs things of their significance and value. Um, for uh, Abraham and Sarah, it was a reduction of God, right? God says, I promise you a messianic child. And Abraham and Sarah in their old age said, God can't do it. We have to do it. For Esau, it was, it was Jacob. Uh, I love my other son, Jacob. He's not the man I want him to be. He can't be the birthright. He can't be the promised messianic child. For Jacob, it was Rachel. He went to his uncle's place. His uncle had two daughters, Rachel and Leah, and Leah was beautiful, and Rachel uh, was not to him. And he had very little value in Rachel. And so as soon as after that first seven years, and he was tricked by his uncle into taking Rachel as uh, his wife, the first thing he did was, Hey, I came for Leah. And he argued with his uncle about getting Leah, and so he committed to another seven years of work to get Leah. And then when he had Leah, Rachel 
the whole time, Rachel was, was, was little to him. He saw little value in Rachel. Rachel was with the birth of her first three children. In uh, chapter 29 of Genesis, starting in verse 31, this is the story of Rachel, Rachel's children being born. When the Lord saw, or, I'm sorry, Leah, actually, I'm getting them. Uh, when the law, Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. But she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And he called his name Simeon. Simeon means to be heard. And again she conceived and bore a son, and she said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have bore him three sons. Therefore his name will be called Levi. Her children were her way of getting her husband's affection, getting her husband's love. Reduced her children to a, a way to get her husband to see her, to hear her, to appreciate her, to love her. This changes quickly, and, and Leah is uh, becomes a, a uh, becomes a, one of the few people in the story that finds their satisfaction in God at that time, and she uh, names her next children about having her peace in the Father and in, the, in God. Lastly, it's, just, it's never enough. C.S. Lewis writes, uh, Books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came to them. If they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are, the on, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited, is the music we were born remembering. We were born with a desire for joy, with a desire for happiness and peace, a desire for meaning and purpose and wisdom, but only that can be found in God. And we get glimpses of its beauty. We get glimpses of it through pleasure. We get glimpses of it through wisdom and through doing good and wise things. But they're only glimpses. And they only point us back to the thing to which we're supposed to really find it. But when we pursue it, they become dumb idols, breaking our hearts as worshippers. They leave us longing. They leave us broken. As Jacob was before he uh, encountered that wrestling match with God in the garden. Left alone, uncertain of his future. Is he going to be killed by his brother? Is his family going to be killed? Is his, that messianic promise going to not be fulfilled? Some, some of us do pursue it in, in the doing good thing. But again, If there is nothing bigger than us, if there is no, in fact, legislator, as uh, Stark said, what is good besides what you decide it is? And if it's just your personal decision, how do you know it's good? How are you certain? 
to what are you uh, pursuing outside of yourself that good? If your answer is, there's nothing, it's only me. I'm going to decide what is good because I'm going to look as this teacher did and said, this looks like it will be pleasurable. And therefore, I will partake of it. And you have to realize that it's not really a good, just a decision with no real value. Because somebody else can have an absolutely different take on it and be as right as you are. Because there is no legislator other than ourselves. So, if I say it's great to enjoy uh, the Indians and I'm going to watch every single game, and somebody says, wasting your time watching sports and not pursuing um, work is what you should be doing. If there's no legislator, neither one of us are right, neither one of us are wrong, because there's no real value in either, either statement. It's just empty vanity. But as well, again, everything you think you did good will become extinct. So then, we've compartmentalized, I can say this word, we have circularized our meanings. We've given meaning at, in places where it doesn't belong only because we think it leads to meaning in other places. We have uh, pursued pleasure. We've lived for pleasure. We've thought about doing good and seeking good, and we've found all these things lacking, and we've become a cynic, in a sense. There's an, an old parable, fairy tale, something um, that many people refer to as the obliging servant. Um, I'm going to read it for you. Pretty, pretty profound. So there's a servant and there's a, a king. And the servant, uh, or the king says to his servant, servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. Bring me at once the chariot. Hitch it up. I will ride to the palace. Ride, my lord, ride. All your wishes will be realized for you. The king will be gracious to you. No, servant, I shall not ride to the palace. Do not ride, my lord. Do not ride. He will send you to a far place. You will be captured in night and day. You will see trouble. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord. Bring me at once water from my hands and give it to me. I wish to dine. Dine, my lord, dine, my lord, dine regularly as the gladdening of heart. No servant, I shall not dine. Do not dine, my lord, do not dine. To be hungry and eat, to be thirsty and drink comes upon every man. This is, that is much too common for any significance. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. A woman, I will love. Yes, lord, love, my lord. The man who loves a woman forgets pain and trouble. No, servant, the woman I shall not love. Do not love, my lord, do not love. Woman is an iron dagger, a sharp one, cuts a man's neck. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. I shall give food to our country. Give it, my lord, give it. 
The man who gives food to his country, his barely remains his own. But his receipts from interest become immense. No servant, no food to my country I shall not give. Do not give, my Lord, do not give. Giving is like loving. They will curse you, they will eat you, your barley and destroy you. Servant, obey me. Yes, my Lord, yes. I will do something helpful for my country. Do it, my Lord, do it. The man who does something helpful for his country, his health, his selfful deed is placed in the bowl of martyr. So it just means meaning, lasting meaning. No, servant, I will not do something helpful for my country. Do it not, my Lord, do it not. Climb the mounds of ancient ruins and look at about. Look at the skulls of late and early men. Who among them is an evildoer? Who is a public benefactor? Servant, obey me. Yes, my Lord, yes. Now what is good? To break my neck, your neck, throw both in the river, that is good. Well, you notice the servant. This time he doesn't respond as he did. He says, Who is tall enough to ascend to heaven? Who is broad enough to embrace the earth? We really do not know enough about things that take a drastic action. No, servant, I shall not kill you and send you ahead of me. Or, I'm sorry, no, servant, I shall kill only you and send you ahead of me. Would my Lord wish to live three days without me? See, when we go through life and we give meaning to things that don't have any meaning to them, and we find them lacking, we become cynical to the point of delusion. Everything that the world might say is valuable and everything that we might have said was valuable, we will contradict now because the only thing we're left to do is to protect ourselves from our lack of hope, our lack of meaning. And so we just pretend like there is no meaning anywhere. We can, you know, the, uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes said about that uh, 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 very story, he said, now we can make too much of this talk of ending it all by a death pact. It makes an, an effective uh, curtain to the comedy. And it may speak more truly than it knows. But when you learn to laugh at everything, you are soon left with nothing worth the bother of a laugh. Triviality is more stifling than tragedy, and the shrug is the most hopeless of all comments on life. In tragedy, you at least have an understanding of there's something that is greater than this or better than this to which I am called to or which is available to me. But in this cynicism, in this triviality, everything has lost any type of value. And this, Kidner writes, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment is the only honest one. So it is, if everything is dying, we face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. It is then that we can bear as the good news, which it is, that everything matters. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if you look back into Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to read, uh, starting in verse 24 again. It says, There is nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. That second sentence is really strange because it says this also. What is the other thing? It's what Kinder, uh, Kidner was uh, saying. Uh, the suffering. See, there's deep meaning and profound beauty to be found in realizing that everything has purpose and everything has meaning because it was created with a purpose, built for a destiny, a purpose. But there's great beauty and great meaning in realizing that apart from God, Lewis uh, wrote uh, this. How could an idiotic universe have produced creatures whose mere dreams are so much stronger, better, and subtler than itself? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic? If you are really the product of this materialistic universe, why don't you feel at home here? Why don't you find meaning and purpose and joy here? If you view the world as only existing, or if you, if you existence as the thing only that exists under the sun, only that appear under the sun, why don't you feel peace here? Find your home here. What the writer is trying to tell us is that he's really, he's finding, he's not just finding satisfaction in, in the work of God's hand, but he's also finding in the despair and the pain and the grief over the work that God uses his hands to bring us as well. Paul in Romans 8, I think, picks up uh, the teacher of Ecclesiastes' story with the cross and reads this. You want to turn there, we're going to read a few verses. Turn to Romans. Romans is in the New Testament. You have the Gospels, Acts, Romans. Chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly so that we wait eagerly for adoption as sons in the redemptions of our body. For in this hope we are saved, in a hope that is not seen. For who hopes for what, is, what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. So God who loves his creation, designed it to be in a dance with him, realizes it, it's in a wrestling match trying its best to be independent of him, to separate itself from him, 
sees its groaning, its longing, its desire for more. And so he gives us his good things. Just enough to lead us into despair. Just enough to give us a taste and know we need more than what this world can give. Just enough to give us a taste of goodness. Just enough to give us a taste of pleasure. Just enough to give us a taste of joy. And the hopes that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, Sartre was right. We need freedom. His freedom he was wrestling with, though, was a freedom from God, wrestling for independence. God is calling us to depend. A freedom in Him. A freedom in the legislator. Freedom in the one who says, look, I see you fighting against me. I see you longing for me. And I know that in my holiness, as Jacob realized in his wrestling with God in that dark night, would be too much for you. And so I will come in a way that you can see me as Christ, going to the cross. And in my state of holiness, I will take your holiness, your unholiness on myself. All the things you did as you wrestled against me, you tried to get away from me. As you reduced me and you reduced my creation, you, la- you gave it a lack of significance and a lack of value. And you used people in my creation and purely as an apparatus for your own pleasure. I will take all that on me. In the hopes that you will see in your futile vanity, van- vain life, you were created more for more, for something different, for something greater. They're not fish. I left in an ocean of despair. Just believe me. The fish I put in an ocean of despair so that you can find my joy. You can know you need me. Christ tends to be very empathetic and very compassionate to the known sinners of the world. Much more blunt and direct to the Pharisees and the scribes, those who appear to be good, to appear to have uh, a, a holy righteousness about them. And Christ is saying to them, you can't know me until you, need, until you know you need The sick aren't going to a physician until they know they're sick. So he, as a gift, tries to make it as obvious as possible to us that we are sick, that we are broken, and we are delusioned and despaired. And so we, there is this great beauty in the reality of this world. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, in his great wisdom, is trying to get you to see that you are broken and that you need your Savior. And so the one that we fought against came as he did as that wrestler at Jacob in the middle of the night and allowed us to wrestle with him, even though we're not worthy of it, even though we don't have the strength to do it, and in fact allowed us to take him to the cross. 
and to nail him there and to mock him and belittle him there so that he can one day in his messianic strength, strength beyond which we can know or understand apart from him, can break us from the bondage of this world and bring us into his kingdom, bring us into real meaning and real peace. And so we are free to not live through impulse and impracticality and by reducing things. We don't have to become disillusioned as uh, the servant is in that uh, story. Because, again, as you read the end of uh, chapter 2, Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have an enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. God wants for you in all of your pursuits here. For those pursuits to be directed to Him, and in them you find joy and wisdom. Everything that you used to try to find meaning in, and you gave value to in a vain attempt to find those things, can be found with real meaning and real value in God. We're not called to abstain from good. We're called to enjoy it in Him. Father, I pray that you will help us to know you and your goodness in a way that allows us to see us in our vain lives. Your good things separated from you and us, and in their vanity, their emptiness. Help us to know where we're trying to compartmentalize and to ignore the whole in the hopes of finding meaning apart from you. Help us to know when we are logically and circularly trying to give meaning to things that don't have it apart from you. Help us to know when pleasure is becoming something we're seeking to distract ourselves from in our disillusion and our despair, what we're trying to find meaning in apart from you. Help us to know where we're cynical, where we've given up hope, and know you as the answer, the hope, and that's good. Help us to know you the thing we need more than anything. The greatest treasure, the greatest wisdom, the greatest peace, the greatest love, the greatest relationship, the greatest purpose. Help us to know you. Help us to seek you in the ways we need to wrestle with you for dependence. Contradicted and corrected, but to hold on to you 
when we're struggling in our disillusionment and despair. And your wise words become our foundation. Amen. Amen. Amen.